Today is part two. We actually did uh, part one twice because the first time I did part one might have been part of the spiritual warfare. Uh, all but a, about five or six people are missing. So I just did, I kind of redid some of part one last week, although with some slightly different emphasis in case anybody is nutty enough to want to listen to both of the messages. Uh, they were slightly different. I doubt there's anybody that nutty. But um, today, I'm going to try to just finish this mini-series. And uh, today, at part one, we looked at things we must know regarding spiritual warfare or things we must understand, a foundation. Today is things we must do or practice, things we must practice concerning regarding spiritual warfare. Now, we modern people, since the Enlightenment, uh, that, that modern Western cultures have a very difficult time wrestling with ideas like there's there really are that there's demons and there's satanic angels and there's a personal devil but the bible presents it so and um the the more western the culture is i uh i really love my uh bible studies with uh jason shung yun the from china and uh, he comes every other sunday this is not his sunday to come he goes to the Chinese church on the opposite Sundays, but he uh, talk, talks about how it's even harder for Chinese people to come into believing in the baptism in the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, uh, things like casting out demons. Uh, and he's been having a Bible study with me about the baptism in the Spirit, and he's uh, God is really opening up his mind and his heart to that great truth. But their culture... Uh, Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto said that communism is a humanism. And communism is based on a deeper worldview, one of the four great worldviews called materialism. And materialism is the assumption that everything, that eternal, that material, material, the material dimension was eternally existent. Whereas biblical Christians uh, know that Hebrews 11 Three, by faith we understand that God created the world out of nothing by the word of God. That's the, the, the Latin in theology you study is called ex nihilo. We know that God is spirit, and only God the, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the only eternal things eternal in the universe. God is eternal. And he created material, the material dimension at a, at a point in, in time which is a thing he actually created. He lives outside and above time. He created time for his purposes. So, but a uh, materialist uh, would be, of course, a Darwinist, an evolutionary uh, thinker, and they would believe that matter was eternally existent and that everything evolved from matter. And as such, you have no room for an unseen world in your worldview. And this is the religion of America's public schools, but it's even more so the religion of, of the communist Chinese public schools. They, they are brainwashed to believe there is only eternal matter. Even the things that go on in the unseen realm of our being can all be explained by chemistry, biology, and physics. There is no unseen soul or unseen spirit. I, I remember the first time in the 1980s at Ohio State University when I witness to some guys who had just been in the United States for a week from communist China. And they were fascinated by this idea that I believe there was a final judgment and that God was a spirit and that we had a spiritual aspect to our being that was unseen. 
They found that very fascinating and intriguing, and they had never considered such a thing. Now, when you've been brought up in, in Western culture, <clears throat> it's very difficult to enter into the reality of biblical culture where over 25% of Jesus' ministry was casting out demons in a culture that was much more godly than ours. So what, you know, the, the real explanation for our lack of seeing these things is actually the layers of unbelief we have in our culture, not, not our, our commitment to Scripture. So God help us and open up our eyes. So, uh, I'm going to just read a few introductory verses today. Um, if the first one is Genesis 4, 7, where God says, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. It's interesting that in this particular passage, God sort of personifies sin. If you study iniquity and sin, those two words throughout the Bible, you'll find that sin is more than a concept. Sin is a power. Iniquity has a power and iniquity gets into your being through sin and has, a, and has an anointing and a power. But sin is a non-personal power. But being delivered from iniquity or delivered from sin is part of our journey as Christians. Luke 4, 1, uh, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the devil? Actually, no, by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And when the devil had ended, not if the devil, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. See, there is a spiritual warfare, and the demons and, and Satan are, are looking for an opportunity. And there are seasons where, where it's more opportune than others. And those seasons are generally when you've had some spiritual breakthrough, like you've gotten baptized in the Spirit out of a, maybe a kind of Christianity that, didn't, that underestimated the, the power of the Holy Spirit and the realm of the Holy Spirit. You're going to have more spiritual warfare immediately after that season. Jesus himself, after he was baptized in the Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. See, it's in the, when you work it all out, God is sovereign. And the reason there is a Satan, and the reason there are satanic angels, and the reason there, there are demons, is because God has allowed it for his overall greater purposes of sanctifying his church. You need to put your, your foot on his neck as part of your growth. So John 14, 30, Jesus says, For the ruler of this world has come, is coming and he has nothing in me. That's very important part of how, because today I'm focused on what we must practice. One of the things you need to see is, um, I love many people in the, that are sitting in these pews. And there's some, I really admire your level of maturity in Christ and sanctification. But there's no one here that can say the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Anybody want to come forward and, and uh, make that claim? I don't think so. I hope we would have at least a little bit of a doctrine of sin and brokenness to understand we're never going to be able to say that this side of heaven, right? Are we? So we need the next verse, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
and the life I now, today, this moment, the only time you can walk with God is today. You have to walk with God in the moment. He's outside and above eternity, and he only intersects with eternity now. Okay? So, um, I now live, the life I now live in the flesh, today is the day of salvation. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what? We have to walk in the power of his resurrection by the power of his Holy Spirit. There's no other place to stand. We can only stand in his grace. I can't worship based on how little I read the Bible or how much I read the Bible this week. I, I can only worship based on what he has done for me, right? And so that that's so important. Um, and the only way the ruler of this world can come and have nothing in us is when we're living in Galatians 2.20. Of course, there's other verses who state the same kind of Philippians 3 and so forth. It's no longer I live, but Christ living through me. You know, we, it's funny because religion has this way of trying to get you to be performance oriented. So, you know, I'm going to do this harder and do this harder and this. But, you know, every day you need to empty yourself and just say, Lord, I have no righteousness. I can't even have proper motivation. Come live through me, Christ. Every day you have to reorient yourself to the basic truths of the gospel and stand in the power of his resurrection. That's the only, that's the first thing we have to practice if we're going to stand in any kind of spiritual warfare. And actually, spiritual warfare isn't designed to make you try harder and harder and harder. It's made to make you, Hebrews 4 says, let us draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need, right? It's to make us see that I can't, apart from him, accomplish anything. I, unless I abide in him, I can do nothing. I certainly can't. Uh, you know, he, he has given us authority over all the authority of the en enemy to tread on serpents and scorpions, and I cannot do that in my natural self. Right? Uh, Galatians, or 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should take advantage of us. Uh, uh, ESV is outwit us because uh, we're not supposed to be ignorant of his devices, his designs, his schemes. Various translations use various words. Okay, so we're going to get into this that we've uh, touched on the last two weeks but didn't get to develop. All of the enemy's schemes, strategies, and attacks proceed from his or their nature. Remember we talked about three enemies, so that, that's what this three times three intertwined is. I just want to remind us, we all have three enemies in the Christian life, right? The first enemy is the world system, right? Ephesians 2 talks about Satan as the prince of the power of the air. There's a satanic kingdom that's every bit. There's, there, there are angelic spirits. There are demonic spirits in this room right now. There are probably more spiritual beings in this room than there are human beings by quite a bit. If we had eyes to see. Right? But the third enemy, as Pogo said, I have met the enemy and he is us. Our third enemy is our sin nature, right? 
So as we're going to look at things today, when, when those are inextricably intertwined, when he tempts us, how does he tempt us? But through our sin nature, right? So that's the one three that I have there, three times three intertwined. And um, then his, Satan's kingdom has three types of beings. Satan himself, who's called the tempter, he's called the adversary. We gave it in the first teaching, we gave a whole bunch of names for the slanderer. Uh, Diabolos means slander, Satan means adversary, and so forth. We, we gave seven or so names for, for, the, for the devil himself in, uh, in teaching one of this series. And, uh, however, there are satanic angels. Revelation 12 talks about how a third of the stars of heaven were, were swept away, and stars are always symbolic of governmental beings in, in the scripture and so forth. But there are demons. If you, if you look at the Gospels a little more carefully, we all read the Gospels and we go, oh yeah, there's the gathering demoniac, there's the Syrophoenician woman, there's uh, the guy whose son was being thrown into the fire. And we, you know, we might be able to remember three or four more in, uh, specific encounters with demonic spirits. Uh, a man who had a deaf spirit or uh, a, a dumb spirit, and then he, Jesus cast it out and he could hear and speak, these kind of things. But what we miss sometimes is passages like in Matthew 4 where it says, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Matthew 4, where it says that, that multitudes came and he healed them all and cast demons out of many. And if you really look, think it through thoroughly, at least a quarter to a third of Jesus' ministry was casting out demons. Yet most Christians have never experienced that, never done that, but that's really only in Western culture. Do you know most Christians in Central and South America, Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, where there's not a cultural preconception against the supernatural, have experienced casting out demons and have seen it. And I, again, I remind us where, that Jesus, you know, there's this idea among Western Christians that we subtly think, we would never state if if we saw it this clearly, you'd say, oh, no, that's not what I believe. But we kind of think Jesus was accommodating himself to the psychological black backwardness of his day and age. That That is not so. And he was living in a much more godly culture than we're living in. The truth of the matter is, we just have a, a you know, Second Corinthians 4, 4 talks about how the God, small g, of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That they might not see the glory of God in, in, in the face of the gospel in Jesus Christ and so forth. If we think of, of the gospel as accepting four spiritual laws or praying a spirit, spiritual prayer or whatever, but the gospel, Colossians 1 says, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his beloved son. The gospel is coming out from the power of all darkness, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and being regenerated and, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live like the models we have in Christ and the apostles. Anything less is sub-biblical and sub-normal. And we have to constantly cry out to God and say, help our subnormalness if we're going to get anywhere. All right, so we get that three intertwined types of beings and so forth. So 
Number one, he comes to us through pride. In, in Genesis 3, first he questions God's integrity indeed in his word, right? Is indeed has God said? You better know the word because the what when 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 Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, right? After the first temptation, Satan wised up in the next two, he quoted scripture, misquoted scripture to Jesus, right? So uh Satan says to Eve, indeed hath God said. Is that what the Bible really says? Is that what God really told you? Of course, there was no written word, but, but God had spoken to, to uh, at least Adam, and Adam had told Eve. But then he goes further and he says, for on the, God knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll be like God yourself, Right? determining for yourself what is good and evil. And we've all been cursed with pride in determining what's good and evil for ourselves and self-autonomy and self-determination ever since, right? Now, many people believe Ezekiel 28, those the verses I have listed there, we're not going to get into them, and Isaiah 14 are... Um, are symbolic. They're stories of the in Ezekiel, the king of Tyre. Uh, Isaiah 14 is a little bit more obvious because he's talking about Lucifer, the shining one, and so forth. But these are are um, depictions of the things that cause Satan to fall. And if you think it through, he it's it you know it says that until the day you wanted to exalt your throne above God and so forth, he became the first evolutionist. It's no wonder that, that any fallen religion, has, has it has to have a doctrine of evolution. It has to. It philosophically cannot have a doctrine of creation because he had to begin to reason as he worshiped God. And because you become more beautiful, whenever, whenever you worship God, you become more like whoever you worship. And he began to get his eyes off God and think about his own beauty and, his, and the great wisdom he had. And his exalted place in in the triumvirate of of Lucifer, Michael, and Gabriel. And then he began to reason: maybe God wasn't here from all eternity. Maybe he just evolved before I did, and he's lying to me. And maybe I'm as great as he is. If you think it through, he had to go through a reasoning process like that to enter into the rebellion he did. Pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have never had a day in my 39 years of walking with Christ that I didn't need to desperately humble myself. Pride is like, it's worse than flypaper. It's like being dipped in some kind of really thick tar and then you have to try to clean it off. Have you ever done a tar and gravel roof or a tar driveway trying to try getting tar off of you is so hard you know pride is every time you think you've humbled yourself and every time god helps you go to a new level of dependence on him and interdependence on the body of christ and 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 so forth there's there's just another layer of pride <laughs> right any anybody tracking with me here <laughs> you're all just more perfect than i am i think but uh 
it's insipid, right? And it's, and it's part of our fallen nature. It's very much in the world system. And it's part of those little voices that whisper to you. I'm almost ashamed with crying to admit that in my uh, younger Christian years, uh, you know, I would get accolades about being a Bible teacher. I don't know why, because I can't do it anymore. But, and, you know, you'd get these little thoughts like, oh, that was a powerful message. Boy, I'm really smart <laughs> or sharp or something. And it's like, and then you know, like, oh, my God, help me, Lord. Don't let me think those thoughts. You know, <laughs> you know you're, you're like, uh, you know, you ha- learning to take praise and, and reflect it back to God is part of growing up in the Lord, isn't it? Right? So um, pride, rebellion. Now, again, it starts in our human nature for us. Isaiah 53, 5, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Do you know what the the most important lesson you can help your kids with as you're raising them? Don't punish them over spilling the milk or messing up their diapers when they're one year old or something. But don't let them have a get their way about every little, I want juice and I want it now and I want it. And, and, you know, and draw some boundaries and win. It's the best thing you can ever do for your kid. Don't have erratic boundaries that are all over the place. Talk it over as husband and wife and say, but we need to win this battle here. It's one of the best things you could ever do for, for your kids. And it's one of the best things you can do in your own life is, you know, I'm not going to cross this line or that line or whatever. Because rebellion is big in our nature. And, you know, ever since the 60s, probably the most popular bumper sticker that has stood the test of time and is still used is what? Question authority. That bumper sticker started in the 60s. You still see it around, don't you? We've, we've, we've had 50 or 60 years of, of, a, of two generations being raised with, the, the main, with one of the main values to question authority. On top of that, as our culture has, has crumbled, we've had the crisis of character in every authoritative, you know, our government is not to be trusted on so many levels, right? I can't blame us for having questions about being spied upon, and right? You know, our pastors have let us down, especially me. No, hopefully not. But, uh, you know, our, honestly, our, our you know, bosses have, that have embezzled things, um, you know, finding men and women of integrity is very hard these days, right? Unbelief. Well, unbelief has many manifestations, it, but it starts with questioning the word of God. It questions your identity. Remember that the enemy said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, right? Uh, it questions God's word as being truth and God's character. God is trying to, God is trying to keep you back from something. Many a person has uh, got into a lot of trouble uh, in the area of sexual morality simply because of thinking, well, you know what, God's so out of date, and and what, you know, it's such such a good thing and so natural. Uh, not in the right context. It's, it's a great thing in the covenant context. So 
Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Division. Anything God is building from a school to a church to a business, Satan's goal is to divide it. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He accuses, we're going to, as we look in some things about how to overcome Satan on the backside of the page, which I hope to get to today. If not, we'll finish this series tomorrow, make this 2A. But um, division, uh, he's, he's called the slanderer. Diabolos means slander, right? He's unforgiveness. Nothing will mess up your walk with God more than a root of bitterness. And God allows you to be tested. My second year as a Christian, entering into my sophomore year of college, I was home for the summer and read the Bible for hours and hours and read all kinds of Christian books. But it seemed like the Lord was directing me toward all the verses about forgiveness and being quick to forgive and what roots of bitterness like Matthew 18 and so forth. And I read uh, books about unforgiveness. One that sticks out to me was by this Lutheran nun named Bashelia Schlink. Some of uh, probably only Ray knows who she is, but uh, she was a wonderful Christian who, was, who really uh, did some amazing things during the period of the World War II. But um, I, I read all these books about unforgiveness. Now, I didn't know the ways of God enough back then to understand this was a setup. <laughs> I had uh, chosen a particular roommate who was a Christian guy, didn't know him that well. And I discovered he was one of the hardest people to live with there ever was. <laughs> you know, he was self-righteous. He, he ground his teeth all night long really loud. He, he, uh, he had an 8 o'clock class, which meant that he left at 10 minutes to 8 every day. And his mother would call at 10 minutes after 8 every day. And, the, and the, back then in the dorms, they had these phones that rang really, really loud. There's no way you could sleep through them yet. I had to jump out of the talk bound, go over to the ex and, and explain to her each day, ma'am, I work till 6.30 in the morning, and I have a 9 o'clock class, so I sleep from 6.30 to 8.30, and Bill leaves at 10 minutes to 8, and you call at 10 minutes after 8, so you miss him every day. And I really wish you would not call at 10 minutes after 8 every day. <laughs> and it uh, took me a few months to get mean enough to just take the phone off the hook before I went to bed. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, just sometimes God has uh, just set you up. And I wish I could tell you I went through this with such grace and forgiveness all the time and stuff. By the middle of the school year, I was having fantasies about pummeling the guy. You know, like, I'm going to punch him when he walks in and beat him up and shake him and go. And, uh, and uh, well, fortunately, that's kind of how God sanctifies us over. You know, I had to go to God and say, what a, I'm so full of, I'm so easily embittered. I'm so easily angered. I have so much unforgiveness in my spirit. God, help me. Unfortunately, the way he helps you is send you another roommate like that. <laughs> but, uh, but by the grace of God, he, enables, he empowers you to, to change. Right? That's exactly how he, God blesses you or afflicts you with roommates according to your needs, right? Okay, so um, division, gossip. Gossip is the acceptable Christian sin. Just want to tell you about this so we can, so we can pray about it. 
took Brother Larry to the airport, and do you know what he, and he bought breakfast? Do you know what kind of breakfast he bought? Donuts. Just want to tell you about it so we can pray about it. No. <laughs> Donuts is the other acceptable Christian sin. But, uh, <laughs> so, uh, we all love pastries. Um, I think. At least I do. <laughs> so, all right. Get it? with Division. Uh, fear. You know, people who do deliverance, some people who do deliverance claim there are over 500 demons of fear. Um, fear, everything that got, that is a twisting from, perversion means to twist it from God's intent. Do you know you have a godly fear? I mean, it's a little bit wise that if there's a cliff right there that, like when I'm walking in Clifton Gorge, we, we, we take the top path sometimes. And I like to look out over the gorge, but I usually stay a foot or two away from the edge. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, to get right up and put your toes over the edge and stuff is a little, you know, that might start boarding on tempting God, right? Uh, you know, I sure hope this thing doesn't crumble. You know, that there, there's a godly level of fear, but then there's all kinds of inordinate fears, right? I was plagued by these things when I was, when I was, uh, a kid, I always I would hide under the covers. That's that my parents would hang up clothes in the hallway, and it'd be like, "Oh my God, it's shadows." There's a robber. You know, fear is like uh, uh, can be a tor terrible thing. And as you grow in the Lord, perfect love casts out all fear. Sometimes you need some deliverance. Sometimes you just need to grow in your intimacy with God. And as, as you're filled with the Spirit and you walk with God, His love delivers you from fear. People have fears about their salvation and fears. Oh, and, you know, and those things, overcoming them are great because it will cause you, by the grace of God, to take your stand on the gospel. You can't win the battle for condemnation or fear or any of that, except in the grace of Christ. And it'll drive you to the Lord. That's why the Lord allows it. Deception and lies. The devil is who deceives the whole world, Revelation 12, 9 says. Jesus said in John 8 that whenever he speaks, he speaks from his nature. He's, he's the father of murder and the father of lies. And we've all told lies, right? All men are liars. That includes all mankind. I actually had a guy once that thought all men were liars. That just meant to the male gender. <laughs> and that women weren't liars. Well, I, I love the ladies in our church, but I've not ever met a lady that's not a liar, right? Have you? All right, and finally, Murder. One of the things you've got to see is you'll, you'll come face-to-face -face with this if you ever get involved in deliverance ministry is murderous spirits always start with unforgiveness spirits, bitterness spirits that lead to anger spirits and hatred spirits. And Jesus said, if you are even angry at your brother enough to call him Raka, you're guilty enough to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, I hope that verse scares the hell out of you. <laughs> because the word raka just means empty head. That means you've called someone stupid or an idiot 
or an airhead. Man, he's a real ditz. Has anybody ever done any of that? Am I talking to the same kind of people that I am? Kennedy, at least, is honest back there. Right. <laughs> you know, this is one for Leah, no extra charge. But when, you're, when you have a gift of administration, uh, it's a little bit like, if, has anyone ever seen that old show from the 60s called Green Acres? Is Larry and I the only ones who know that one? Oh, Steve Lowe, a few of you, you know, you know it. Well, you know, this Eddie Albert, uh, I forget what his name is, and Mr. What is it? Oliver, uh, Mr. Douglas, Oliver Douglas. He lives in this town where, like, he's the only normal person, but eventually, if you realize it, only on a certain level, because, frankly, he's highly abnormal to be living there and doing what he's trying to do. But, like, everyone else is, like, this just whacked out Mr. Kimball. There's all these characters in you know, a lot of times when you're a good leader, you can kind of begin to feel like your whole world is Mr. Douglas. <laughs> really? Right, Leah? <laughs> She's not commenting. Larry can relate. Okay. That, that just happens. You're like, and, and the Lord brings you really hard cases on purpose. He brings you people that are just convolute everything and overthink everything and make it, and are really hard to work with because he loves you and he wants to make you more patient and more gracious. That's just how all this spiritual warfare stuff works. Let's at least get into uh, the next page thing. That was uh, no, that was kind of the foundation for things we must practice. And I use the word must. That's why I started with sin is crouching at your door and it's desires for you and you must master it. It's, it's amazing. We have so many cults of excuse-making, blame-shifting, and I can'ts in our culture that has become an epidemic. But you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, Philippians 4.13. Now, when you're a young Christian, your emphasis tends to be on you can do all things. As you grow older, it, it becomes more and more through Christ who strengthens me. But God demands that we become like Christ, that we walk in the grace of Christ. Hebrews uh, 12, 15, I don't know if I have that verse somewhere on this page, but it says, see to it. He, in other words, he's telling you, this is something you must do. You've got to do this. You don't have any choice. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness spring up and by it many be defiled. Yet we allow all sorts of unconfessed sin and roots of bitterness and other things in our life, right? But see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. There is grace in God to do this. And you must do it because sin's desire is for you and its desire is to destroy you. John 10, 10, Jesus said, I came that they might have, uh, have life and have it more abundantly. We all know that part of the verse, but do we know the, part, the other part of the verse? It's the same verse. But the thief, which is the three inextricably intertwined enemies, come only to kill, rob, destroy. How much, how, you know, like if we had a little tract and we went on campus and we wanted to, I just want to share like three or four spiritual principles or five or however many you want to make it. And uh, we started with, instead of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, there's really a devil there's really demons and there's really a flesh 
and they want to kill you, rob you, and destroy you. <laughs> Let's start. That would be a, actually a true way of starting with presenting the gospel. That would help people get ready to hear about grace. Right? There is a thief, and he wants to kill, rob, and destroy, and he has a legion of demons at his disposal, and, and, we, and he has access through our flesh if we allow it. And we must, sin is crouching at your door and you must, its desire is to destroy you and you must overcome it. You gotta. Well, let's just talk about one today. Uh, I'm just deciding whether I want to talk about, I'm going to skip the one on temptation because I can talk about conviction versus condemnation faster. Many, many people in our day and age, especially the more the family breaks down, the more divorce there is, the more we have no fathers in our home, the more people struggle with this. And there's some legitimate, but you have to understand that these psychological factors are in a sense secondary. Primary is this. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death, right? I probably had that verse there somewhere, right? Well, I got the Romans 8.1, but I should have put verse 2 with it, right? But here, here's what I, I, I got a little bit of time, so I did just, or very little time, so I want to read the other verses real quick. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. That's the essence of condemnation right there. You know what? To, to, to walk in conviction versus condemnation, you have to receive God's forgiveness, you have to forgive yourself, and you have to accept it by grace based on no merit. You, you look at anyone who's struggling with condemnation, and it's just that they can't, they just don't want to say, you're telling me God loves me no ma because I'll, no matter all the stuff I did? I can remember in July 1974 going to this little Pentecostal church, and uh, my friend Parley Agner took me to in Finley, Ohio, and hearing a great guy named Moses Vey speak, and uh, some of you know Ben Vey, that's, that was his great uncle. <laughs> And uh, he talked about the baptism in the spirit. And I knew a little bit about it because my parents and I thought I should go forward. But I said, I can't go forward. I deal drugs. I lie. I cheat. I lust. I, I you know, I hide my drugs in the chief of police's house. <laughs> you know, I, I was, I, and I, I remember on the way home saying, do you think God would baptize somebody like me and the Holy Spirit with all the sin in my life? That's condemnation. You know what? God eventually delivered me from drugs and lots of other things along the way. But the, the, the bottom line is, you know, we stand on the rock of Christ and that's it. There's no other. My righteousness is a robe he put on us. There's all kinds of metaphors and word pictures of it in Scripture, but it's based on the blood of Jesus. And you not only have to uh, receive his forgiveness, you have to forgive yourself, and you may have to ask God for grace and work on it till, you till your feelings match up with what you know. 
but that's where you'll always stand your entire Christian life. The baby Christian who just is wiping away tears because he's feeling God's cleansing and so forth, and some apostle who started 47 churches in 38 lands, are, their, their righteousness is based on the exact same thing. They have no other ground to stand on except that, you know, Jesus said that uh, beginning in my name, forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in all nations. Amen. That's it. So um, Revelation 12, 9 and 10 says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. Now, the problem with the guys in Romans 10 was they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. When Listen to this carefully. When you struggle with guilt and with shame and so forth, you need to understand it's rooted in this thought, I ought to have done better. And it's a lie. I couldn't have done any better until he, Paul said, there's nothing good that dwells in my flesh, Romans 7. I couldn't have done better. I, I you know, like I could say, well, gee, my parents became Christians and my dad asked me to forgive him seven years before I became a Christian and I was around all this Christian stuff and I didn't want anything to do it and I should have came to the Lord. Nonsense. I came to the Lord when he drew me. I came to the Lord when he, when he uh, cornered me. You know, we all say, I was seeking for God. And so, no, I, he, find, he gets you in the corner and he gets his foot on you finally. And he says, do you finally give up? And then we, oh, I'm such a sinner. You know, we receive the Lord. And then, then the next day we try to act all self-righteous. That's what the Galatians did, right? Oh, I, I want you to know that I praised God and received God and I'm... Nonsense. We will never get past that in our flesh we were vagabonds, whores, murderers, drug dealers. If you didn't murder anybody, actually, there's nobody in this room that probably didn't murder quite a few people in their hearts, including your parents, your brothers and sisters, your roommates. <laughs> You're a murderer. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. And so condemnation is based on this idea that I should have by myself, by my own initiative, done better. And you will only live out the fruits of the Spirit and the practical righteousness when you stand in the grace of God and lean upon his power and his resurrection and his Holy Spirit and you, uh, the tools of his word and his church and his spirit empower you and then a little bit of righteousness starts to grow, and, and then we look back and go, oh, man, I've grown so much, and I know the Bible. And, I, and then we have to get humble all over again. But over time, we learn to stand alone in Christ, right? That's the difference between condemnation and conviction. And you know what? Some people struggle with this more than others. Don't judge someone who struggle with shame problems, guilt problems, can't forgive themselves, can't receive. Sometimes people just get broken in that area, just like you got broken in this area or that area. Some people really have a hard time battling. Psychologists call it obsessive compulsive disorder, but just battling to stand in the forgiveness of God. 
And if we have church members or you've struggled with it, I want to just say, you know, Jesus welcomes you in the midst of that struggle and tell him you're having that struggle. Draw near to the throne of grace to find help and, and say, I won't be able to empower myself to stand firmly on this unless you empower me. 